So you're ready to ask the biggest question of your life. The only question before that question. How do you find the perfect ring to ask it with? With the incredible selection of diamonds at Jared and our price match guarantee, you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love. Visit your local Jared store today and dare to be devoted. We promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer. See jared.com slash price match for details. Hello, and welcome to Everyday Connection Now, with your hosts, Jean Victoria Norlock and Rick O'Shields, bringing your inner life to your everyday life. Welcome, everybody to this edition of Everyday Connection Now. I'm Richard O'Shields, and off to my left-ish, that way, towards the snow, well, all the way up in the snow, Nikki Leach. How are you, Nikki? I'm good, and we have lots of snow. Lots and lots and lots of snow. <laughs> lots and lots and lots of snow. It's a winter wonderland, really. Mm, is that what we're calling it today? Uh, well, we could. We could just call it cold. It's not. Yay! <laughs> I, I can happily report that um, the cold weather has finally subsided. So it's actually right back to being the beautiful, amazing winter wonderland that I'm blessed to live in, minus the freezing cold temperatures. So I'll take it. It's all that's, good. that's awesome. And, uh, Indeed. All of our long-time listeners know I get in trouble often if I mention that it's cold anywhere I am because it's never as cold as it is where she is. One day maybe we'll get that the other way around. Maybe. Your version of cold and my version of cold are two entirely different things, my friend. Well, I have, <laughs> I, yeah, I got to agree. It, it's definitely the case. And at, Hey, six months in Costa Rica, you know, cold, that's anything in the 60s, really, or below. Yeah, it's a rough life. You're living. I know. <laughs> I know. Ah, oh it has its moments. Don't they all? Though no. that's that whole living thing. It's a living ups, downs, round and round. So I just want to point out to everybody again our uh, morning show. If you haven't caught it yet, you just got to get by and catch it. We're having too much fun for it to be called work. Absolutely. So we, okay, play the game. It has been a lot of fun. We've had some interesting things happen in the first week, and we're only on Wednesday of the first week. So, Apparently, a college professor has already even assigned it as homework. Required listening. Right. We should, we should send a sympathy card to the class. I'm so sorry. Oh, <laughs> that's cool. No, I think it's, I think it's interesting that a professor um, at a university, I think it's in New York, um, would assign our good news morning show as as an assignment for her social issues university class. I think that's very cool. I think it's extraordinarily cool. And uh, yeah, it says maybe we're maybe we're on a good idea. Maybe so. Yeah, we she like seems to think so. 
We like to think so. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So what are we so what are we doing uh, tonight? We're Well, I think we're talking to a new friend. We do. We have a new friend and um uh or tonight's friend is an author again, but uh, saying that uh, he's an author is like leaving a lot out because well the title of the book is Expeditions and uh, we're going to find out why it's called that, but uh, definitely more than just an author, but here is Lee Elders, how are you, Lee? Welcome. Hey. hey, I'm good. Thank you, Rick. Happy to be here. And hi, Nikki. Hi. Glad to have you. So we'll get right to it. We'll ask you the big question of the night, and then we'll see where that takes us. Okay. So, Lee, who on earth are you, and what do you do? <laughs> well, I've been an adventurer, explorer, and investigator most of my life. And I live in northern Arizona. By the way, you can send some of that snow up here. We're in a drought, as uh, as Rick probably knows. But uh, I've traveled the world. I've always been interested in solving mysteries, or trying to solve them, I should say. And uh, this is how uh, the book came about, how my uh, journey into Ecuador came about in the 60s and the 70s, is I wanted a little in- adventure in my life, and... Uh, I found a way to do it. Uh, I hired on as an underwater diver for an Arizona mining company going to Ecuador. Uh, they didn't stay long because of taxes uh, thrown against them. I stayed, and I started my journey. And uh, from that point on, uh, that was Ecuador in the 60s and 70s. I got involved with other investigations later in life, finally formed my own company, uh, which was called Intercept. Intercept was an electronic countermeasure firm operating out of Phoenix. We did a lot of work for uh, corporations that were concerned about eavesdropping in the office place and uh, uh, telephone problems. And I still own that company today. I do consulting work with it. And uh, currently, I'm working on my second book for Ecuador. Wow. Well, you haven't led a boring life, have you? (laughs) That's Adventure with a capital A. (laughs) Uh, You might say that, yes. Uh, Had a great adventurous life. Uh, uh, Adventure to me is, uh, well, in the early days, I almost felt like it was uh, addictive. Perhaps that's a strong word. So let's just say it's fascinating. And uh, that led me into many uncharted areas. But actually, my background, uh, how I first got involved with adventure, was I was born on the Apache Reservation in uh, eastern Arizona. And at a young age, I explored the dry washes around our railroad house and uh, fell in love with that type of life. And so that sort of conditioned me for what I was about to run into in Ecuador years later. But uh, I grew up with the Apache kids. I learned how to communicate with them, how to become their friends. And uh, we did a lot of little exploration projects together. So that was really the early beginning. 
Okay, now now you got me curious. Um, because if you were Apache, you would be saying, I am, and adventure's in my blood, I would think. So why did you grow up on an Apache reservation? That seems like an interesting story in and of itself. And uh, yes, quite it an early quite an early introduction into something that we talked about on this morning's show, which is living spirituality, basically living in tune with your surroundings. And, and, I mean, of course you'd want to get out in the world and learn more about it because the world would be a playground to you, really, I would think. Well, early on, uh, just the Apache Reservation was a great playground for me. But I was uh, raised by my grandparents. My grandfather was a section foreman for the Southern Pacific Railway. And in growing up, we always lived in these out-of-the-way places. Uh, And later on, we uh, were at a place called Peridot, which is on the fringe of the Apache Reservation in eastern Arizona. And that's where I grew up and eventually... Uh, went to school, a couple of years of school there, before I moved to the city. <clears throat> but when uh, one of my, shall we say, great adventures as a youngster was one day I was exploring, and I come across this teepee. Now, back then, uh, the Apaches were really the third world citizens. Uh, they lived in hogans, they lived in teepees. Uh, a lot of poverty on the reservation. And one day I came across this teepee and uh, I went up to investigate and a very old Apache man came out, scared me half to death, asked me what I was doing there and so forth. I told him I was just looking and he invited me in and eventually he became my friend. And I found out later he was an Apache medicine man He uh, called himself the Apache Kid, and he taught me a lot about the ways of the Apache, how to, uh, (coughs) excuse me, how to uh, distinguish different types of tracks, uh, things like that, how to find water in uh, barrel cactus, all types of different things. So he was my early mentor, and I think he prepared me for the life I eventually had with the Shoah Indians in Ecuador. Wow. How blessed are you? Pardon me? I said, how blessed are you? I mean, that's that's such an amazing experience to have at an early age. It was terrific. Uh, And, you know, at the time, uh, I just went with the flow. And uh, I wasn't frightened by anything, although there were a lot of rock fights I had with the Apache kids because I was the only blonde and uh, type of General Custer in the area. I was blonde, outnumbered, outgunned. But uh, finally, uh, we came to know each other and we trusted each other and respected each other. And uh, it was a wonderful life. And I really... I think that's what drew me into the adventure of Ecuador, of signing up as an underwater diver for this mining company. I wanted to rekindle 
that adventure I had as a child and growing up. And I was able to do that in my 30s when I went to Ecuador. And I think that upbringing on the Apache Reservation really taught me a lot and helped me a lot in my other journeys in life, shall we say. You'll have to excuse my voice. I've been out in the wind today. <coughs> excuse me. But I have allergies, so I'll try to keep oh, it. Oh, no. That's all right. That's okay. Rough night for us to be asking you to talk for 90 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so so tell us a little bit about Ecuador, though, because I've never been. So, um, it, and have you been back recently? And was it much different? I guess it would be a little different back in the '60s than it is now. But you keep referring to it as an adventure, and um, you you met people there, and you got involved with the locals. If what I'm understanding from what you just referenced a moment ago is <laughs> true. Please understand that it's my job to not know anything about you. So I'm well, asking she, questions she's from the, the audience up. Perspective. Like I've done, I've done no research. So what held you to Ecuador? Why did you decide to stay? Oh, I, gosh, back in the 60s, this, uh, my first trip took place in the 60s, early 60s. Ecuador, about the size of Colorado, uh, 50% unexplored in the 60s. The eastern part of Ecuador, called the Oriente, which means east in Spanish, was primarily unexplored. And it was definitely the Wild West. And this turned me on. I mean, gosh, uh, this was like stepping into a page of you know, past history. And so I fell in love with the country, fell in love with the people, and I was very fortunate in meeting some very good people who assisted me, some Ecuadorians. One gentleman, he was uh, going to college at the time. He was studying international law, and uh, he became my translator. In the beginning, later, he became a very dear friend. His name was Adriano Ventimilla, or Donez. And uh, he worked for the uh, Court of Justice in Cuenca. Cuenca, Ecuador, is a city up in the highlands. And, uh, (coughs) excuse me, but (coughs) it's the only city that you can get into the Oriente from. And so that's where I made my base of operations. I met Adriano, he assisted me, and uh, later on I was allowed to stay in his home with his family. That was great, but he was just one of many I met that were as curious about me as I was them. And later when I started uh, chartering flights into the Oriente, the eastern part of Ecuador, in uh, search of this lost emerald mine, emerald outcropping, uh, I met a Shawara shaman who later became a friend of mine. And this shaman uh, was with the Unsuri Shawara tribe. And he became a good friend and a point man 
for my expeditions. So we got along great, and they were a great help to me. But Ecuador, back in those days, was definitely the Wild West. Yeah, but it had to be quite uh, attractive, sort of cowboys and Indians, fast and loose, here we go. That sounds like fun to me. <laughs> the major cities, uh, Guayaquil, Quito, Cuenca, of course, they were quite civilized, They're living in modern times. But the further you went into the Oriente, uh, the more difficult it became because you really had no law and order in there. Uh, there were a few military garrisons in the area that I worked in. A lot of uh, horse thieves living in the area. Uh, my friend, Dr. Ventimiglia, he was always uh, in court with somebody who had stolen a horse. I thought that was humorous at the time. <clears throat> but uh, it was the Wild West in the Oriente. Very difficult to get into. Sakua was the name of the city. Actually, it was a jungle outpost I had to fly into. And the only way you could get there was either by charter flight or by DC-3 military. And there were a lot of problems with those flights. Uh, a lot of airliners, uh, especially DC-3s, crashed in the jungle and were swallowed up by the jungle. Some of them were never found. One charter flight that I was due to go on, had scheduled to go on, I had missed accidentally. Uh, couldn't make the time slot. It flew without me. And unfortunately... <coughs> Uh, five people on board uh, were killed. So I was very lucky in many areas uh, and when it came to flying. <clears throat> but once you got in there, then it was another issue. You had to... Uh, we were looking in an area for these clues left in this last will and testament by this gentleman that had found the mine and by the way, the mine was found in 1891. And <clears throat> he could never get back to uh, the emerald outcropping. Uh, his name was Rafael Mejia because uh, he was conscripted into the armed forces of the military and he fought in the revolution there in the Battle of Guayaquil in uh, 1895. <clears throat> and in that battle... Unfortunately, he lost a leg, became an invalid, could not return to his treasure. But he left uh, clues in his last will and testament uh, to his family of how they could go about finding the treasure. My friend Adriano had run into the, uh, a distant family member that was searching for it. She had two children with her. She was near starvation, coming out of the jungle. And so he gave her money, got food for her. And because of his generosity, uh, she gave him the last will and testament of her great-grandfather, Rafael Mejia. And all she asked is if we ever found anything, would we share with her? And, of course, we agreed to do that. So we were constantly searching in this one area. Uh, going upriver, a river called the Tutnangosa, and uh, 
This took many, many months and over a period of years to get to certain areas. Uh, we were cutting trails in uncharted area. There were no roads. There were no. There were a few game trails in there, but mostly we had to make our own trails and uh, follow this river. And we were searching for another river, which we finally found. But this we didn't find until the late 60s. So it was quite an arduous trip. A lot of adventure involved. Uh, and uh, I loved it. Uh, I, I, I really I found it appealing. Found it very interesting, even despite the hardships. I'm, um, I'm sure it had to be. It, uh, we don't, we don't often think about the hardships that, uh, you know, not having civilization, quote unquote, around, entail, and they're, you know, just being down in Costa Rica, they're. Lots of challenges that one wouldn't expect, and then when you take it back to. 60s Eastern Ecuador, my goodness. But you mentioned this um, shaman that you sort of ran into and fell in with and became friends with. Uh, yes, his name was Necta, Antonio Necta. And uh, the way we met him is in our push up the Rio Tutanangosa, uh, we had to cross some land, and his brother-in-law, was on the land the day that uh, we arrived, and he wouldn't give us permission to cross the land. He said we had to talk to Don Antonio. And so we asked him where Don Antonio was. He says, well, he's out in the jungle. He'll be back later. So we waited. We went back to Sakua with him and waited a couple of days and uh, because he wouldn't give us permission to cross. And <clears throat> so we left a couple of plane tickets, for Antonio to fly to Sakua and meet with us to see if we could make arrangements for crossing his land. And so he did. He flew into Sakua, or flew from Sakua into Cuenca. And uh, <clears throat> we met him, spoke with him, and over a period of days, we became friends, and he agreed to allow us to cross his land, and he agreed to work with us. And we told him what we were looking, searching for. And unfortunately, uh, he didn't know what an emerald was. They had other names for emeralds. The, one of the names they called an emerald, I believe, was, uh, I think it was Natima. I'm not sure right now. <clears throat> but anything green, uh, they would pick up and carry home with them uh, simply because uh, they loved the color. Uh, they weren't searching for anything of value. So we tried to indoctrinate him on what we were searching for, and that took some time. But eventually, I, I think we got, a, uh, got it across to him, <clears throat> and he became our friend. And in learning about him, which is very interesting, uh, <clears throat> his brother-in-law, Jesus, had told me a story about an American who had traveled into their area in the 1950s. And this American was searching for different kinds of plants that might cure certain types of illnesses. And uh, he contacted uh, 
nectar because nectar, my, his brother-in-law told me, was a new wisdom. And I asked him, what is a new wisdom? He says, that's a shaman. That's a shaman that works to help people, not cast spells on people. <clears throat> so now I find out I'm with a shaman who's called a Pinair Uwisan, a healer. And there's only two types of shaman in the Shuara tribe. And one <clears throat> is a curer, and the other one is a bewitcher. So I was fortunate to find a curer. Excuse me. So with that knowledge behind me, uh, I started asking more and more about tribal conditions and traditions in our search for the emeralds. <clears throat> and he would bring in other shuara to work with us that were trustworthy. Now this is a period of time right at the end where the unst we're in constant warfare with the Ashuara, which is another subculture, uh, Hebrew tribe. And uh, <clears throat> they were doing raiding parties. They were taking heads. Luckily, I wasn't exposed to any of that. But as you farther, got farther into the interior is when you would run into this type of uh, danger. <clears throat> but Antonio became my dear friend. And he was the point man on these expeditions. And uh, because of him, I was able to go very deep into the interior um, with his guidance, with his expertise. And one of the things that really made me feel better is because I had studied that part of the Amazon. Uh, and I'd found out that, my gosh, they had every type of poisonous snake you could imagine in there. And especially in the area we were going. You had the coral snake, you had the fertile lance, you had the bushmaster. And then you had snakes, according to Antonio, that he called them like the dos minutos snake, or the tres minutos snake, which is two-minute snake, three-minute snake, or four-minute snake. And I asked him why they called him that, and he said, because that's about all the time you have to live after they bite you. So that wasn't too encouraging. <laughs> he, <laughs> really? He stole, stay, stay away from the two-minute snake. It's not good for you. <laughs> but, uh, he talked about one snake in particular, that the Shawara, and the Shawara were the bravest people I've ever been around in my life, <clears throat> and the strongest. But this one snake was called the Ekis, sort of like, I don't know if you drink beer or not, but like the Dos Equis beer from Mexico. It's spelled E-Q-U-I-S. Right, the letter X. Yeah, the letter X. And that's how they identified it, so they called it the Ekis. And I offered them money to go bring me one, dead, of course. And they just looked at me and laughed. It's crazy. So this is one snake they feared, <clears throat> and it wasn't until the last chapter of this book that I ran into one, and I don't want to spoil that now, but uh, anyway, he told me about the snakes, and he saw the concern on my face, and he said, well, look, <clears throat> we have a snake bite cure, and I'll go find some for you. I said, that's great. What is it? He says, it's called... Piri Piri, 
Later I found it was from the Jungus plant, and it was the tubular part of that plant where you had to dig the plant up to get the tubular part. And they would crush that and add either alcohol or water with it, and you would drink it to uh, counteract a snake bite. Well, this sounded great. There's only one problem. Uh, I can't remember now if it was hematoxic or the other toxic that it didn't work on. So 50, 50% of the snakes in there, I mean, I was rolling the dice, and I thought, okay, if I get bit by a good snake, the <laughs> help me. But if I have another snake that bites me, then I'll uh, resort to my uh, snake bite kit. So that gave me some calming sensation, a little bit of peace of mind, until one day we're sitting by this river waiting for it to go down so we could cross it. And I had nothing to do, so <coughs> I excuse me, I decided to uh, read the instructions on this snake bite serum I had. And I read it, and I couldn't believe it. It said, you must keep this refrigerated. <laughs> now, we're, we're five days walking from the nearest hospital. Providing it's open. Oh, that's priceless. I'm yes. sorry. I that's told, funny. I, well, I, I, told, I told my friend with me, I said, guys, this would be great if you were bitten in the lobby of a hotel, of a hospital. But it's not worth a damn out here. So anyway, so I was stuck with the wow. food. Goodness gracious, what a time to discover that, eh? Oh, well. <clears throat> yeah, because that would have concerned me if we'd already been talking about the two-minute, three-minute, and four-minute snakes, and those weren't the ones they were scared of. It was this other one. Yeah, I would be like, yeah, no, that must be the 10-second snake, something, keep it away. <clears throat> I, uh, I found a little bit of information about the Ekis. Uh, there was a... Padre Carlos Crespi, a Catholic priest in Cuenca, uh, that I became friends with. And in Padre Crespi's early days, when he first came to Ecuador in the 20s and 30s, even the 40s, he took lots of exploration back in the Oriente. And he told me on this one journey they had, um, they were, this one Indian that was working with him, went to the pack to get something out of his backpack and there was an ecky snake in the backpack and it struck him on the finger and before they could do anything Crespi told me that he died I mean he died very quickly he said blood popped out all over his face over his body and he died an agonizing death <clears throat> and the snake he told me about I said what kind was it he said it was the ecky's and I said, how big was it? He said it was about 12 inches in size. It crawled into his backpack. So <clears throat> I thought, my gosh, there. I found out they come in the lengths of six or seven feet and up to maybe eight to 10, 12 inches. And they're all very deadly. <clears throat> so that snake was in the back of my mind a lot. And not only the snake, we had problems with the jaguar in there. Uh, we got into one area past the Rio Tigris where 
the, the Jaguars had killed out most of their game, a lot of their game. And the Indians said they were muy bravado, muy bravo, very brave. <clears throat> so we took care, double uh, care to make sure we sanitized our tracks. We made sure that our evening meal did not contain pork or beef or anything like that would cast a scent. So the Jaguars were a very difficult situation. And also there was a another little cat called the Tigrillo, which uh, <clears throat> its uh, original name is the Ocelot. And, uh, <coughs> excuse me, although it was small, it was very mean, especially during mating season, season or especially after a fresh kill. You had to really bypass them because they would fight for their food. And then you had all these other problems, which uh, you couldn't see. You had the bacteria. You had the fungus. And you had to be very, very careful in not scraping yourself, cutting yourself, because bacteria would get into that wound and it would act so fast. You, you had to be careful of that. And also... Uh, the amoeba problem. Most of the rivers had amoebas in them. <clears throat> in fact, I, I picked up amoebas in 1973 when I went back to Ecuador, one of the years I went back. And they were very difficult to get rid of. Uh, so you had all of these things in a jungle that uh, wanted to harm you. But on the other hand, the jungle was such a beautiful place. I mean, my God, we would cut through some areas and run into a clearing, and we're in very tall trees, and you'd see these wild orchids just everywhere. And you could almost scent them. And multicolored birds, different types of birds, and hanging vines. I mean, it's just gorgeous. And for an Arizona kid, a desert kid primarily, it was really a wake-up call to see that beauty. But that beauty combined danger, and you had to be very careful. Mm-hmm. But but you couldn't have done it with a better guide. I mean, <laughs> to, to have built a relationship with a local shaman. Wow. I'm so... It's just... Cool. Well, that's that, I'm sorry. That's that alignment and connection. You ran into one pretty early, yeah. and you ran into a good one. Uh, right. And not just a good one as in, an, you know, a healer versus a uh, the bewitching person, but uh, but sounds like a really fine fellow. Oh, and generally so, good person. But oh, what yeah. I'm interested in, then, if, if that's the case, because... The, that must have been because you're coming from you're coming from the states, going to Ecuador, and and granted you did have some time on the Apache reservation, so like you said, that would have prepared you for that. But the the belief systems and and the way of life of those people must have been so different from anything that that you knew. So I'm curious about that. Like it, I mean, that must have been like the greatest learning experience ever, just to get to know them and how they how they think, what they believe, how they interact with their surroundings. Oh, it was it was definitely 
incredible. That's the only way I can e explain it. Antonio was uh, not only my guide, but he was also a mentor for me. And not only did he help me with snake bite uh, material cutting uh, Puri Puri for me, but he also told me about the tribal traditions. And uh, he was caught between both worlds. He uh, at that period of time, Sakua, there were a lot of missionaries in Sakua, a lot of uh, Catholic priests, and they were doing their work. And a lot of the uh, Shuara were converting to, as they called it, the white man's religion. And Nectar was trying to walk a fine line between both because <clears throat> the Shuaras which is, uh, as I said earlier, called the Hebrews. Uh, <clears throat> their main thing in life is our normal waking life to them is a lie. It's an illusion. Their real life comes to them under the hallucinatory drug of ayahuasca, which they call Natima. And they take that at an early age as a child. They see visions. <clears throat> They're guided by spirit, the spirit. They're totally, totally into the supernatural. And that was one side of knowing Antonio. And the other side, he was asking me about my religion. So we were trying to compare the two. And there was very little comparison between the two. Because <clears throat> they sort of believed that everything had a soul. They believed that... Uh, some of them, anyway, the ones I was around, believed that when they died, uh, they would incarnate back in spirit form and continue to hunt and fish, hunt the areas they knew, and fish by their house and join their loved ones. So to them, death was something they really didn't fear because they had nothing to lose. Uh, with the death, it was like an eternal uh, exploration, hunting and fishing. And Nectar told me about that, that many of the Shorara believe that uh, the supernatural world was more powerful than the normal world. <clears throat> and in some areas, when we, when we got up to where we had to penetrate an area called the Kyanade, <coughs> excuse me, the Kyanade was uh, a very rugged place. Uh, this was the area where we felt the emeralds were. Uh, but before we could go there, they had to get permission from their spirits. And the way they did that was one of two things. They could go through the dream state to get it, to obtain permission or denial, or they could take ayahuasca which would give them the same information. And many of times I was asked if I wanted ayahuasca. Well, no, I never took it. <laughs> I didn't want to take it. Uh, but they would take it. They would drink it. They'd prepare it and drink it. And I'd get up the next morning waiting for an answer, and they would give it to me. Well, the Spirit said we could go in. But once we get in, we, can't, can't, we cannot camp on the other side of the river. So, <clears throat> not only did we have the spirits dictating 
where we I could go on this expedition. But they also believed in spirit numerology. And I found that interesting because <clears throat> one day we had five. We were crossing this river, and we set up camp. We are going to leave the next morning. There was five of us. <clears throat> there was Nectar, our spirit guide. There was a young man named Ambusha, who was another guide who had been into the area, more so than Nectar. He knew it better. And there was our mule of a man who was carrying most of our supplies. There was a young boy who was uh, with us as a cook, and he took care of camp duties. And there was me. And that morning, we were told that only four of us could go. And Busha had talked to the forest guardians, he called them, and he said they only will allow four to go. So immediately we started saying, okay, who's going to stay, who's going to go, and so forth. And he stopped us, and he says, no, it's not up for you to decide. It's up for the spirits to decide. And I thought, oh, my gosh. So anyway, that evening, uh, we didn't go. We stayed at our camp. We didn't cross that river. And the next morning we got up, and I looked at Ambusha, and I said, okay, who's being left behind? And he pointed to the young boy. And the young boy had come down with an illness. I mean, his nose was running. He was coughing. His voice probably sounded lower in mind today. But he was sick. So he couldn't go. And so I looked at Ambusha and he said, see, the spirits picked the right one. So there was always this battle going on. And I hope I'm answering your question because I am going from personal stories that have happened. Oh, it's absolutely beautiful. It's fascinating. And because you just kind of answered the next question I was going to ask was, well, you answered one already because I wanted to know if you had had partaken in one of the ayahuasca rituals. Um, It was quite an honor to be asked to, to be part of that because it, it is a ritualistic part of part of living. Um, it, I was the next question I was going to ask was if you had seen evidence or proof on your journey because your belief systems were obviously not the same as theirs. So this must have been a little out of the box for you, I would think. And I was wondering if you'd seen evidence of the supernatural, but you just, (laughs) young boy got sick. Well, that's just one story. Uh, To follow up on your question, um, the first thing Necta asked me when I met him in, in Cuenca when he came in, he asked me if I believed in spirits, and I said, yes, yes, I do. And, uh, The reason I said that is because in growing up with my grandparents, my grandmother was evangelical, and I mean Bible-thumping, fire and brimstone type, and she always told me about the angels she was talking to. Uh, She spoke in unknown tongues at revival meetings, which I was a part of. At first it scared me, frightened me half to death. I'm eight, nine, ten years old. I didn't understand it. But then I noticed others in their congregation were doing the same thing. 
it was a language I couldn't interpret. I couldn't even begin to mimic. I'd never heard anything like that before. And in talking with her and finding out later, she said the Holy Spirit was coming through me. And that's what they believe. So this is the kind of belief system I grew up with. <clears throat> so going into Shawara land, and when they're telling me the spirits are dictating things, I'm, I'm listening. Of course I want to see. I want to see all I can. I want to learn all I can. And the boy getting sick taught me, or told me that there's something going on. But then later, <clears throat> it graduated from sickness to orbs of light uh, would appear across the river. I mean, they'd just float and dance around. Uh, they looked like they were the size of basketballs. And there was, in one case, we had eight or nine of them doing this. On this one river, when we were told not to cross by, this, by the forest guardians, um, <coughs> they said that uh, the spirits would come in and monitor us. And that evening when it got dark is when these floating balls of energy came in. They did have geometry to them. They seemed to have intelligence with them. They would float. They would stop. They would reverse their pattern. And in some cases, uh, in one case, I saw a, a bright ball of energy, which was moving around the trees and moving around the rocks. And I asked Anna Antonio about it. He said it was a good spirit, a forest guardian, one of those that tends to the forest to take care of it. So I, I observed that with my eyes. I observed the other balls of energy with my eyes. Wow. And I, I got to the point where I accepted it. It was okay. And I think because I accepted it, because I wasn't afraid, is why Nectar became such a close friend. Because I had many opportunities to turn around and hightail it out, get out of there. But I wanted to stay. I wanted to seek and learn, and that's what I did. You are really, truly blessed. You really are to to get to live that. And thank you. I, I haven't read the book yet, but just talking to you in the first half of the show, I just want to say thank you for writing the story because, wow, people need to read about this. <laughs> this this I, is like a real life. I mean, I was happen. born in the 60s and I really thought, you know, go explore the jungle with the natives was long over with. And... It, you were busy doing it about that time. That is right. That is, cr that is correct. I, I first went there in 1966, and the first year, year and a half, I was involved with the Gold Project, uh, which was successful for me. I was on my own. I didn't have anyone with me. And then when I started searching for Mejia's Emeralds, that started about 1968, and that happened through 69. I returned to the States in 1970. <clears throat> I had broken a ring finger on my right hand, and it had been uh, set wrong. 
and the finger had rotated, so they had to re-break it and re-cast uh, it. How? So, yeah. So I didn't get back to Ecuador in 70, but I went back in 71. I was there in 71 through 75, <clears throat> and then I left and on a journey, different uh, type of journey, got married, had children, career moves, that type of thing, put Ecuador behind me, and then 1988, <clears throat> I started having dreams. And the dreams were so real. The first time in my life I'd ever had the imagery, that was the contrast of the imagery. It was so beautiful. It was a jungle setting. And I could hear sounds. I could hear rushing water. <clears throat> and this went on for four or five days, every evening. And I'd get with my wife and son the next morning. We'd try to figure out what was going on. And then about the fifth or sixth day, the imagery of the dream included Antonio Necta. And he was standing in front of me in my dream. <clears throat> in his left hand, he was holding a green stone, a very large green stone about the size of a golf ball. In his right hand, he was holding a large gold nugget. And it was bright sunlight, and I could see the green fire from the emerald or what I thought was an emerald. And I could see the reflection of the gold coming out of a rock in his right hand. <clears throat> and he uh, was pleading with me, saying, Lee, Lee, please come back. You must come back. I'm being watched. And the others are all gone. You're the only one left. You're the only one that can help me. Please come. So now I've been out of Ecuador for years and years and I have other uh, responsibilities as we all do and uh, I was debating whether I should go and then I, the more I thought about it I can't I've got to go because this man's my friend <clears throat> he risked his life for me on many occasions so I'm going so I returned to Ecuador in 1988 and those are the last two chapters of expeditions uh, Gold Shamans and Green Fire, my book. And they're very compelling chapters because it happened after a long, shall we say, period of time to where Ecuador was totally divorced from my mind, searching for emeralds was out of the equation. Adventure was, well, I'd had pure adventure. My God, I'd had most, more adventure than most people in a lifetime in those years. But I was settled down, and going back, I had to shake, literally, civilization out of my uh, thought transfer system, out of my consciousness. And I, it took a while to do that when I got back there to help Antonio. But, uh, yes, I've had, I mean, I've had a very wonderful life. And I'm going to take a quick break so I can get some water right now. Yeah, we're uh, we're right at that halfway point. Uh, I think we'll play uh, Inavi's Earth Prayer tonight. Hey, Nikki. Oh, I would think that would be appropriate. Our circumstances. Song based in part on Hawaiian Ho'oponopono, uh, but a, a song of gratitude and, and healing and respect for uh, the earth. 
like Jungles Like. So this will be our dear friend Ina V with her song Earth Prayer. And we'll be right back with lots more with Lee and Brett Elders.
Everyday Connection on the Flow Cooperative, an entirely new stream on the scene. All right, welcome back, everybody. Again, that was our dear friend Ina V, whom you may find at inav.com. That's E-N-A-V-I-E.com. And uh, check her out. Lots more good music there. And... uh, She's doing some amazing things with the proceeds from that song, Earth Prayer, called the Earth Prayer Project. So definitely check it out. We like it, Samina V. We do. Wow. I, I, I hardly know where, where to you start. start. Yeah. How do you start? Well, without blowing the ending of your book, because I really think people need to pick this book up, because it sounds bloody fascinating um so without giving away too much about the ending can you tell us a little bit about what happened when you went back oh sure or is that is that asking too much? <laughs> no 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 i'll be happy and, to and definitely thank you again on the on the going part because uh yeah many, many a rational yeah. mind would have explained that away as indigestion or something um <laughs> uh, okay i went back i've I went back to Cuenca and met with uh, my friend Adriano, who was now, he had graduated from college. Uh, he was uh, had a doctorate in international law, and he's still a very, today, he's still very active in law. And uh, anyway, uh, I told him what, I, what had happened. He said, well, you've got to go back. He says, you've got to go back in. And he had, he had heard a lot of the stories about what had happened, but he said, uh, I think it's very uh, noble of you to come back to go help Antonio. And, you know, when I was packing for the trip, I thought, well, okay, this is going to be a mission of mercy uh, to help a friend. But do I need a weapon? Because I had disposed of all my weapons when I left there. And so I thought, well, I'd better take a shotgun. 
just in case. Now, in 1988, I had to fly out of Los Angeles. And, of course, they had all the screening equipment in the world there. <clears throat> so I had a Mossberg, and I stripped it down. In the old days, you could uh, hide this, that, and other things in Christmas boxes or whatever, and they didn't open them. So it was cool. But this time was different, and I sweated getting through uh, customs in L.A., but I did get through okay, and I did have a weapon with me, just in case I might need it. So <clears throat> when I got to Sakua, uh, I went to Nectar's house. He had two homes. He had a ranch up uh, in the area where we were searching called the Kayanade. He had a place called... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, Wakani, and Wakani was named after a spirit bird. Uh, both of the Uisan shaman, the good and the bad, used the spirit bird for different purposes. So he had left. Uh, he wasn't in Wakani, thank heavens. <clears throat> but his house, a uh, little house by the river in Sakua, I met Asus, and Asus was so happy I'd returned. And he says, you're the only one that can help him. <coughs> Excuse me. And so he told me that uh, Antonio had lost his desire to live. There was no light in his eyes. He felt he was being watched by the tribal association. <coughs> and immediately I felt, my gosh, is this because of me? Because he helped me. Because we were searching for precious gems up in their territory. And it was a Shawara tradition that anybody, any member of the tribe that divulged uh, <clears throat> sacred information to a colonial, that's what they called outsiders, they could be put to death. <clears throat> so I'm really worried at this point. I haven't met Antonio yet. But Jesus filled me in and about an hour later, Antonio come bouncing in, grabbed me, hugged me, and uh, he told me the same story. So I said, okay, then what we've got to do is take a bogus expedition back up there like we're searching for it. But if the tribe is watching you, and it is, if it is the tribe, then uh, they'll see where we haven't found anything. You haven't divulged anything uh, of sensitivity to them, and everything will be okay. So he agreed. Let's go. And so by this time, all the years passed, there was a road up to the main river we had to cross. In the old days, it took about a day to get up there. But on this day, uh, it took about an hour and Antonio had hired two cargo carriers, and uh, both of them were surly types, very moody, very angry types, and they didn't like the job they were doing. And on the second day, they demanded more money. And when I agreed to pay them, <coughs> and they said, no, we don't want sucres, which was a national currency. We want dollars. So I had dollars and I paid them, but I knew I had to get rid of them at that point because uh, they were going to be a danger to us. And so we got rid of them. They agreed to leave their our backpacks at Wakani, his uh, house up there, 
So he and I continued this, shall I say, mysterious expedition to nowhere. Uh, we were just out there doing our thing, hoping that if anybody was watching it, they would see that we were floundering. We really didn't know where we were going. We didn't know, really know what we were doing. <clears throat> and this was really true of me at the time because I had just been immersed in civilization for like 15, 16 years. And I was trying to get back into the harmony of the forest itself and trying to balance myself. And that was taking time. <coughs> Excuse me. But eventually, we we canceled our trip to nowhere. And on the way back, we had to cross this, well, it was like a moss-covered rocks by the shallow river. And there was a small lagoon there. And as we were crossing, Nectar lost his balance and started to fall, and I grabbed him. And when I righted him, I lost my balance and fell in. Now I've got a 50-pound backpack on, and I went underwater, and I hit my head on a rock, and <clears throat> I might have, I don't remember now, but I might have lost consciousness for a little while. But the cold water refreshed me. And I saw this object coming towards me underwater. And it had a flat head. It was very long, lengthy. And immediately I saw it was a boa. And we had been warned about the boas because they were very fierce, especially if they were hungry. And here I am. He, he swam right up to me, maybe a foot, two feet away, staring at me. And I'm staring at him. And all this time, I'm trying to get my breath, trying to hold oxygen in my lungs. And I'm slipping out of the backpack. And he's just curiously looking at me. So eventually, I had to leave this marvelous creature. <laughs> and very beautiful. So I popped up out of the water and got on shore. And, <coughs> excuse me. And Nectar was just standing there. He was motionless, expressionless. And I asked him, I said, did you see that? He, he didn't make any comment. I looked back in the lagoon. I could see ripples, but uh, I couldn't see a snake or anything like that. So then we continued on. We went to Wakani and uh, decided uh, at that point, uh, later, when I was at Wakani, I talked to some of his family members who were there, and I asked him if I was the problem because of what Antonio was going through, and they said, no, no, it's not you. They said, uh, he knows what he must do, and it's up to him, but it's not you, no. So I said, okay, that's great. So we stayed there for a couple of days. I still noticed that uh, the spark had left him. He was just a shell of a man I once knew, and that bothered me tremendously. But finally, uh, we decided that we would cross this river, the Tutanangosa, and for many, many years we couldn't cross it because it was so uh, it was so deep and so fast. And we decided to try to find a crossing place. 
And uh, that night, uh, we couldn't find one. So I thought, well, I guess we'll head back to civilization. And that night, I had this dream, another dream. And the dream was two-phase. It showed actually uh, like one facet of the dream one side of it was daylight and the other side was darkness and in the daylight i could see this cable bridge across this river and i had a choice between crossing the cable bridge or going back down the road to civilization so i said well i want to cross this bridge in my dream and the next day uh and uh, one of the family members said, if, well, if you want to cross the Tupnagosa, we have a cable bridge down here, and which uh, Nectar never told me about. <clears throat> so I said, yeah, I want to go across it with my friend so we can do some exploring up in there. And so we did cross over, and we went into this uncharted area, and we built our camps that evening. And right before we were going to bed, we had a fire going outside the tent. There was a lot of smoke. And the smoke saved our life, I would find out the next day. But I was sitting there and just relaxing, and Nectar came up to me. He put his hand on my shoulder, and he asked me if I believed in the Bible. Now, this was strange, because... I had, throughout the years, had noticed his disdain for the colonial missionaries and the men in black they called the Catholic priests. And I, this was really shocking to me. And I said, yes, yes, I, I do believe in the Bible. And he asked me, he says, do you believe that when you die, you will have a mansion of gold waiting for you on the other side? And, of course, I immediately thought of my grandmother who raised me. And that was one of her beliefs, that she would have a mansion of gold. And I told him, I said, yes, I believe you will get what you want when you pass over, what you really want to accept. And he patted me on the shoulder and thanked me for coming and said good night, went into his tent. And at that point, <clears throat> my dream in the state started to make sense to me because remember I said that in one hand he held a green stone in the other hand he held gold and I think the green represented his tribal tradition uh, the sacred Namura is what they call green stones which I think is what they call the emerald uh, yeah <coughs> so I think he was being torn apart as to which direction to take his future life. Did he go with tribal tradition, or did he go with the, the colonial religion? And of course, at that time, uh, the Catholic Church in Cuenca and other major cities, uh, they had these marvelous, beautiful, huge churches. And in Cuenca especially, the altar was gold-plated. So that immediately came to my mind of religion 
And he had to make that choice. And that's why I was back there. And perhaps I had helped him by answering his questions because he knew I I wouldn't lie to him, as I knew he would not lie to me. So that was really, at that point, the most rewarding experience feeling I've ever had in my life. I had journeyed this great distance. I'd come back to help a friend, and maybe he'll make the right decision, but it was still his choice. So we bedded down for the evening. The next morning, there was this loud noise, like somebody was hitting a machete on a tree. And I peeked outside the tent, and here's this young Shuara man, very large for Shuara, he's over six feet tall, very chiseled face, with a machete berating uh, one of the boys we had with us and berating Nectar and demanding, who are we? Why are we camped on Shuara land? And who is the leader of this expedition? So I came out of the tent. <coughs> when he saw me, he really ratcheted down. And I totally ignored him. I walked by him. I went over. And the young boy had already made coffee for us. I got a cup of coffee. I sit down on the log. And I got another cup of coffee and went over and I handed it to him, the young buck. And I knew that under Shawara tradition, if you give a gift, uh, you must, uh, if somebody offers you a gift, it's an insult if you don't accept it. So I handed the cup of coffee to him. He accepted it. And then he followed me over and we sat down together and we started talking. I found out who he was, everything about him. (coughs) And amazingly, his family, his surname was Natima. Now, Natima is the name that the Shuara call referred to as ayahuasca. And he told me that his father which lived across this river that we were not allowed all these years I was exploring. The spirit helpers, the forest guardians, would not allow us to cross this river to go into that area. So we stayed out of it. But that's where he lived, with his family. And his father was a shaman. And he said, my father is a keeper keeper of the secrets. And uh, so we talked, and we were talking, And I told him uh, what I was doing. I told him I was an American. I'd come back to visit their wonderful land. I thought their land was beautiful. And I loved exploring it. And I would do no danger or harm to it. So he embraced me as a friend. And at that point in time, though, he stopped. He stood up and... He said, who placed your camp here? And I looked at Antonio, and then he looked at Antonio. And he says, old man, you should not have placed their camp here. And then he told me, he says, look at that dead snag. And I turned to my right, and here's a dead snag that's tilted perilously 
over our tent area. Okay? He says, that's a danger. Then he looked towards the rock. There was an outcropping of rocks about 30 feet from our camp. And he says, oh, man, did you place the camp here? Necta didn't say anything. And then he looked at me and he said, if you were outside your, he called the tent, house, if you were outside your house last night, he says, there's a deadly snake that lives in those rocks. And if you were outside your house last night, you would have been dead. It would have killed you. Well, luckily, we had a campfire going. But immediately, while I was looking at the rocks, this snake comes out of the rock, out of the holes in the rocks. And it's about six feet in length. And its head is riding high. And with a burst of speed, I mean, it was so fast, I couldn't believe it. It zigzagged past us over down the riverbank. Well, the two men with us, the boys with us, yelled, Eckies, Eckies, Eckies. And so I ran to the tent to get my camera because I'd spent years trying to figure out what the snake looked like, what it was. <clears throat> I'd even gone to the big snake farm up in North Dakota to try to find out from them what it was. They didn't know. So I grabbed my camera, I ran out, and there was about a 10-foot ledge next to the riverbank, and there was a big flat rock there, and the snake had coiled on the flat rock, and it was giving us a tongue lashing. And so I took my first shot, my photograph. I knew it'd be out of focus. It was, because I was so nervous. Then one of the boys picked up a large rock and threw it and hit the snake in the head, crushed it, and it died. And so then we settled down, went back. I was talking to this young man who said his name was Natima. And he said, you were very lucky last night if you were outside your tent. He said, the smoke kept the snake from coming towards you. And I remember that Necta in the past had told me, as well as Father Crespi, that your only defense on some of these snakes, if they enter the kill zone, is to either have a shotgun or a machete, because they'll come after you. And I heard it time and time again. They would persecute a man. And that was scary in itself. But anyway, it, it ran from us. The smoke was bothering it. But... If we hadn't had smoke that night, I shudder at the thought of what might have happened. So while we were talking, I told Marcelo, I said, well, okay, we were talking. I told him about this fall I had in this lagoon. And I thought I saw, it looked like a golden boa, but I knew that the golden boa was very sacred to them. And you could only maybe see them if you were under the influence of ayahuasca. But I described the boa to him. <clears throat> and at that time, he just jumped up. And he says, we've got to get out of here. Pack up. We've got to leave. There's an Iwansi here. And I said, what? He said, Iwansi. We must leave. Iwansi is here. So we started on this. I mean, we packed everything, and he was yelling and screaming at us to hurry. So we 
pulled the tents down and we packed everything and took off following him upriver. And we must have walked for hours. And the Mossberg I was carrying felt like it weighed a ton. And I still didn't know where he was taking us. And I still didn't know what an I once he was. So finally, he felt we were in safe territory. And we made our camp there. And it was getting late in the afternoon. And I had some uh, freeze-dried food with us that we're eating. And I just found out that uh, Natima, his his first wife, was expecting. So I gave him some freeze-dried chicken to take with him to their home. And while we were talking, I said, but look, you've got to, you've got to, what is an Awansi? And I pulled out my Spanish dictionary to make sure I got it correct. And he said, an Awansi, basically an Awansi was a demon. And basically, in researching it later on, I found out that the shaman, the bad shaman, which was called a Wawik, the Wawik could cast spells, and they often <clears throat> called on a magical helper called a Pasuk, and the Pasuk could transform into different types of animals. It could ship shape, uh, shape do things of this nature, but the one big thing that the Awansi was famous for in their tribal legend was killing a person and making it look like an accident, either through a dead snag that would fall on their camp or a poisonous snake that they called an Awansi or a golden boa, a boa underwater that would approach its victim and then strangle it. Then I thought, my gosh, I saved Nectar from falling into the lagoon. I took the fall for him. And this thing that came up to me, practically staring in my eyes, was probably trying to figure out who was I. I wasn't Nectar. Who is this person? Maybe that's what saved my life. I don't know. But while he was talking, and I was getting the food ready for him, it started to make sense. Because we had undergone these three different types of danger that a Pasuk or Wawik could cast a spell on. Now, while we're talking, I hear this guttural sound. And it's the patented cough. If you've ever heard a jaguar up close, sometimes they like clear their throat. And it makes, uh, <clears throat> it makes a sound like that. And I froze. And at this time, Natima, who's no more than 24, 25 years old, he grabbed his machete, and he says, Nawansi is here. And he runs into the dark, uh, into the jungle with a machete to confront this jaguar. And I thought, my God, this is the bravest man I've ever, I've ever met in my life. Either he's going to be killed or he's going to kill the jaguar. What's going to happen? And maybe five or ten minutes went by, and I'm sitting there, eyes bulging, and he comes out of the jungle, and he says, Niwansi, no more. And then he told me the story of how the Pasuk 
if he couldn't get his victim by accident, he could appear near his victim in the form of a jaguar and warn him through the jaguar cough that his time is near and he will be dying. And he says, he says, I got rid of Awamsi. He says, it left. He says, don't worry. He says, my father will take care of everything. And then he left in the night with the two dinners, uh, freeze-dried dinners. So needless to say, I had a very rough evening. But the next morning he appeared, and he was carrying a burlap bag. He, He forded the river, came across. And uh, he, uh, before he left, he says, what do you want me to do with the Awansi? Or what do you want me to do? Or do you want any gifts? Because I owe you a gift. I said, the only gift I want is for my friend Antonio. I don't want any harm coming to him. And then he left with the freeze-dried food. <laughs> the next morning he came back. He had a burlap bag full of Natima ayahuasca. There was about eight sticks, about six inches long. And he gave it to me, and he says, this is the best of all ayahuasca. This is what the shaman use in their traditional traditions. And he says, it's for you, so I accepted it. And then he says, the other gift I have is for your friend. He says, I spoke to my father about him, and my father can cast a spell from an Awansi. And he says, you will not be bothered anymore. Your friend is safe to pursue his life. Are you there? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. What a story. Now, the following days, before I get to the ending, which I don't want to get to. Yeah, let's uh, not go all the way. No. <laughs> yeah. But the his third thing that I had permission for, he says, you have freedom. He says, my father told me that you can now cross into Kyanade number one. All these years I was unable to go there because of spirit numerology or, you know, the forest guardians or whatever. And, uh, but you can go with me. I'll show you the land in there. And he told me that further in, was a city and he says it's called the city of magicians and it's where all the unta shawara and the unta is the big shawara the old shawara and some of them were up in their hundreds one of them that worked with uh, antonio antonio's mentor was still alive he was an unta shawara he was over 100 years old i met him but I had freedom to roam in an area I could only dream about all those years past. And he took me up into this area and I said, is it a real city? Can you see it with your eyes? He says, we're not allowed to go there. But he says, no, it takes many years of preparation to be able to go to that city. And I said, you mean through Natima, taking Natima? He said, yes, but first you have to go through a purification stage. And he says, some can do it in seven days. Some it requires many years. 
And he laughed, and he said, my father told me that you would not take Natima, and he laughed. I said, no. And the reason I wouldn't take it was simple. I'm a control freak. <laughs> and the last thing I want to do is get totally stoned in the uncharted jungle and then have to go out and touch the holographic image of a giant jaguar to prove that I'm a man, as the younger Shuara have to do. So I was very reluctant and take from uh, from my standpoint is I, I was very reluctant at that point of taking it. But, but he laughed and he said, my father told me that, that you wouldn't take it. But anyway, I roamed in there for four or five days before I had to come out with him and I had to return to civilization. But that was the thing. That's the story of why I went back in 1988. Hmm. And talk about a gift. I mean, here he gives you the gift of the ayahuasca, and you don't use it. The, I still have it. The precious gift was the <laughs> days wandering in in no man's land, I should think, for you, for the adventurer and you. It was, and I was told, his father told me, told him to tell me that the spirit guardians will allow you to go in because you came back to help a friend, one of our, one of ours. And therefore, there's no problems. And that makes so much sense on so many levels. That is an absolutely incredible story. And we just scratched the surface of it. Oh, it That's barely. That's the coolest part. I hope you read right? the book. Yeah, I hope I, everybody does. Uh, <laughs> yeah. that's that's in the sound of my voice because it'd almost be silly not to. I'm I'm dying to get into it. Since I'm certain now, just from talking with you, that this is one of those books that I have to not pick up late at night, or there'll be no sleeping that night because I wouldn't be able to right. put it down. I've had a lot of I've had a lot of great reviews on it, and yes, that has come come out quite often. People start to read it and they can't put it down. And uh, I'm happy for that because I think I'm conveying a good good story there. It's a true story. It's part of my life, a true adventure. Uh, it's a part of my life that I can never return to. I can Most adventures today cannot do because, you know, it's uh, back then uh, I had to smuggle weapons in. That was hairy. Uh, there was no GPS. There was no satellite imaging. Uh, all the mapping I did was on butcher paper, red and green ink, outlining the rivers, my trail, this type of thing, which I have in the book. And for anyone brave enough who wants to go there to search for Mahia's emeralds, uh, just bear in mind that things have changed dramatically since then. Today... Uh, no one has allowed free exploration in there. You have to go through the Shuara Federation and get permission. Now, they will allow you to hunt. They will allow you to take photographs, photography. But as I understand it, they will not allow you to search for gold or emeralds or anything else. Uh, so times have changed. And I wanted to write this book. And one of the reasons I waited so late in writing it is because well, first of all, I got in other career moves, and as you know, time gets away from you. 
And eventually, though, in 2002, I decided to start writing it. And my end result was a book that was like 1,500 pages. And you had my manuscript. You had to you had to carry it uh, burl. I mean, it was so heavy. And my agent told me, he said, no, you've got to condense this or make two separate books. And that's what I did. Uh, I have a second book coming out hopefully this year, which is a continuation of my adventures in Ecuador in the 1970s. <coughs> and it's a whole different type of book. Uh, there's no more lost emerald mine to search for. Uh, I wrapped that up in book one, Expeditions. But uh, that's why I wrote it, and it took a long time to write it because I had to go through 98 reel-to-reel tape recorder. I, I carried a tape recorder with me on a lot of the adventures, and it was reel-to-reel. I had to go through those tapes. I had to go through my diary. I took over 500 photographs. I had to go through those. So it took a lot of research and <clears throat> getting the right time, place, names, and things like that in order. So finally, I got the first book out in November of last year, and it's just now coming out. And uh, I hope that everybody enjoys it. Oh. I personally I can't see how not just amazing and uh things that things that a lot of people talk about in their books and their you know this is spiritual fiction or this is that or this because you know nobody's nobody's actually around that did that but Lee's here right here and I'm going to say um I want to give out the website we're not uh, we're not quite done yet, but I want to be sure everybody knows it's it's just Lee Elders E L D E R S. Lee is L E E, so all together. LeeElders dot com, and uh, it's got links to Amazon and stuffs, but it's got a button right there. You can get an autographed hard copy. That's I would strongly recommend it. That's just me <laughs> on that. What do you think, Nikki? Sound like something you want to read? Absolutely. It sounds, it does sound like something I want to read, and and I I hate asking the obvious question because uh, it's my job, and that really sucks in this circumstance. Because for me, the real treasure was the adventure. The real treasure was the relationships that you built. The real treasure was this this inside look into a, a different way of life, a different way of being, a different way of understanding, and and the experience that you that you had. But I gotta ask it. Did you find the emeralds? <laughs> oh no! Don't ask that question. <laughs> uh, I found you can not. You can choose to not answer it, which Uh-oh. will make me just happy as clam. And then, um, then they can just go read the book. <laughs> can I tell you to read the last five pages of the book? <laughs> And I won't have to awesome. answer the question. There you go. That's, that's awesome. There you go, guys. What we're after you right there. The answer to the big question, yeah. as we know a lot of you are thinking it, um, you're going to have to go pick up the book. 
Yeah. That's cool. I, I didn't really want to know the answer, so thanks for not answering it. But I had to ask because it's my job. I've got to ask this, but please, I'm hoping you don't answer. We do that sometimes because, you know, we've got to be honest. Before, yes. <laughs> and, um, but absolutely, the, the, the true gift is the adventure. And the, and the, I just have to thank you again for the telling of the story. Uh, as much as you've told here and then the telling in the book, because so many people have this idea that, you know, these natives from the South America and Amazon, you know, that, that they're horrible. They were some kind of, and uh, but you did mention, I think, taking heads in there somewhere, but, but that the truth is that you sit down and be a reasonable fellow and explore, you know, they want to know what you think. One of the first questions, one of the early questions he asked you was whether you believed in spirits, yeah? That's true, yes. And uh, because obviously from the rest of the adventure, it, would, it wouldn't have really been possible if you weren't willing to, okay, the spirits say I can't cross the river today, so we'll wait till tomorrow or we'll wait until we wait. Um but you just had an honest exploration with him. He was curious about what beliefs that you had, and you were curious about beliefs he had, and you were both expanded by the by the uh, experience. And I think it can always be that way if you're not, you know, a conquistador Absolutely. that's along with some, you know, missionary. Men in Black. I think that's so cool. Men in Black. I, lo- I love that. Yes, I, lo- I love that term. You don't know the, so mil- the real Men in Black? It was back in the 60s. They worked for the Catholic Church. So brilliant. And so true that two people from two entirely different worlds and different backgrounds and different belief systems could come together and find a mutual understanding and a mutual ground to stand on and a very strong connection. I mean, your your friendship goes above and beyond just your everyday, I'm going to call it my buddy and go for a beer kind of thing. This man's emotional turmoil became a part of you in that you dreamed about it until you actually physically did something and took action. I, like, I, that just, that's incredible. That, that alone... <laughs> is something for people to reflect on. Well, I've had, I don't dream often, but it seems like when I do, there's a profound message to my dreams. And many, many years ago, uh, my wife, Britt, was working with the Hopis here in northern Arizona. And uh, she learned a lot about their dream state and what they went through and and that type of thing and the colors and so forth. And... uh, this stuck in my mind that dreams are powerful if you'll listen to them. And sometimes you're given a choice. And thank heavens I was when I was up there because I didn't know if I was really helping Antonio when we were wandering around up there trying to throw off the watchers, as he called them. Later I found out there were no watchers. I found out that possibly him leaving his tribal traditions and and uh, entering the white man's religion would make him uh, a very vulnerable target 
for some of his adversaries, the Wawicks that he had tangled with in the past, because he, he told me a lot of stories about how he treated cows, he treated people that had this Tenzak thrown at them by a Wawick, and a Tenzak is a dart, which they use in supernatural form to throw into the body of the victim. And this, eventually they get sick and ill, and sometimes they die. So he had had his, shall we say, showdown with these types in the past. <clears throat> and I felt that uh, if Natima had not been with us that day, uh, they might have succeeded. His, one of his adversaries might have succeeded in killing him because he was so vulnerable. Uh, he was ignoring the tribal traditions, the sound of the patented sound of cough of the jaguar. He forgot or didn't, didn't clue him in on the Iwansi part. It seemed like he was in another state of mind, a state of bliss, you might call it. And uh, anyway, <clears throat> it worked out for the best. I'm so, I'm so thrilled I went back, and I did help. And, uh, and, and, and isn't it just, um, again, like, this is what I mean when you, you really do lead a blessed life. Um, it's just so fortunate that your wife happens to have studied with the Hopi <laughs> because that would, that would help you to, to encourage you to follow the dream as opposed to I don't know, most men's wives who would tell you that you're absolutely insane and no, you're not going back to the jungle. We have a life here. What are you thinking? Um, there's bugs there there's and good, humidity and stuff. You're right. Um, you, you need to be here with me. Uh, so so good for your wife, too, for supporting you in this. And and as I say that, I can only think, you know, we've got to get your wife on the air. <laughs> oh, you do. Uh, oh, we would love to. Britt is half Cherokee and Choctaw, and half Danish. And here I grew up in an Apache environment, and then I met her, we got married, now I'm in the Cherokee-Choctaw environment. And there's a lot to be said there, because her father was pure Native American, and I remember often him talking about the Great Spirit, uh, that the Indians revered the Cherokee, and other forms and other things in their lives. That was fascinating to me. And so, really, I am blessed. I'm glad you used that word because of, I was prepared for this last journey. And Brit was my big rooting section. You've got to go back. You've got to go back. And I knew I had to. But like you say, some women would have said, oh, my God, you know. What's our life insurance policy worth today? And things you, like that. You <laughs> promised me you left that foolishness behind. <laughs> I can hear it now. <laughs> Do we have time for one more story? No, absolutely. <clears throat> I want to go back to NECTA. I want to go back into 1969. <clears throat> I was still feeling my way. He was a friend and all of this. But I knew he was monitoring me real heavily. And, you know, because I'm I'm not one of his. And I'm a colonial. But still, we had this friendship and this bond going. 
<clears throat> one time I got a telegram. Uh, the phone system from Sakua to Cuenca, forget about. And the only way you could communicate was telegram. And I received one from him telling me I had to come to uh, Sakua, which I did. And I had to journey up the river to Wakani. And his brother-in-law, Jesus, was the one that met me with pack horses. And by then, we could use this trail with horses to get up to Wakani, which was on the fringe of the Kayanade. And I got up there, and uh, I was wondering why he wanted to see me, what was so important. And I thought, well, maybe he's built this bridge across the Rio Tutanagosa. For, for many years, we couldn't get over the river. We couldn't get across it. And I had shipped cable in and all the clampings and everything you knew, need to build a cable uh, bridge with a loop or a basket to where you could literally... Uh, pull yourself across the river, but the the bridge was never constructed, and I couldn't understand that. But on this trip that I went up there, there was no bridge. We finally got to Wakani, and he selected a favorite chicken for our dinner that night. I was starving because I thought I was going to meet him in Sakua and uh, turn around and go back on DC-3 back to Cuenca, but so I hadn't eaten. I didn't I didn't have a weapon with me. I had a lot of hard rock candy. That was about it. And uh but he fixed a nice meal and he told me to go wash up and I went down to the Rio Tutanacosa to wash up. I came back and there was this very old, extremely old Shuara man that had uh, joined Nectar. He'd come in from another house there next door. Uh, Nectar's uh, living area next door. And he was in on this one-hour meeting that I had, and they, through him, I was asked a lot of questions about why do I search for the green fire? What is your motive? Uh, questions like this. And uh, I knew immediately that I was sitting talking to Akacho. Akacho was... Nectar's mentor, and Akacho was reading me, and they had a way of reading a colonial. It was very interesting. They talked about heart fire, a person's heart fire, and <clears throat> I thought immediately, <coughs> excuse me, they had the ability, uh, the Unta shamans had the ability to maybe read auras. And they, this old man was reading my aura to find out my purity of thought, my purity of purpose. And it went on for an hour. And after an hour, uh, time to go to bed. Next morning we got up. Akacho said he wanted to show me something. And at that point I felt I'd been accepted by his mentor. And I felt that my heart fire was good. And so we went on this track about 500 yards upriver from uh, Wakani. And we came to this beautiful little clearing. And Akacho told Nekta in Shawara language, which was really difficult to try to learn. And Nekta repeated it into Spanish for me. And he told me this is where Singusha live. 
Now, Singusha was a shaman uh, that died many, many years ago, but a lot of them still felt that he was godlike, and a lot of them had communi uh, communication with him. And he was sort of one of the forest guardians. And when I was standing in this clearing, God, I felt it was, it was the most incredible feeling. Uh, my skin started tingling. And I felt like something was probing my mind. And I just got really high just standing there, just naturally. And then I had to move back from it. It was so intense. And I felt that perhaps the shaman was there. Perhaps they took me to the Unta shaman, who was a discarnate at this time in life, to get his permission for me to continue on. And I don't know if that was true or not, but that was my feelings. But I had to go through an Inquisition-type experience with Necta and with his mentor before I was given permission to cross the river. And later, we did cross the river. But that was, uh, the heart fire always stands out in my mind. Uh, were they reading my aura? Was it something else they were doing? And since they revered the green stone so much, the Namura, they called it, which could have been green quartz. It might have been tourmaline. I don't know. Or it might have been emerald. Uh, to them, it was just Namura. Namura was green. And, of course, the heart chakra is green, beautiful green. So that left me thinking a lot about what I was doing, where I was, and this magnificent land I was in, in a land where time seemed to stand still the deeper we got up into the interior. And I just fell in love with the people there and what they stood for. And I can honestly say that I don't think I was frightened uh, by them. Uh, there was no fear by them, from them. It was only the unknown, the Walwicks and the forest guardians that, uh, uh, as I was told, they could dictate a man's fate if that man fell in discomfort with them. But I, I did re didn't really fear that because I felt that I was protected. I felt I had this protection around me. And even today, I feel the same way. But that's a story I wanted to share before we say goodbye. Uh, again, I say, wow. It, He's just a whole lot of wow. Yeah. I, <laughs> these are... Uh, precious treasured moments and 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 we are right on our time and we've kept your your uh, throat talking perhaps longer than it want might have wanted uh, but um but it was so worth it so worth it <laughs> oh and such goodness. such incredible so worth it you know we say all the time on this show that people have more in common than they have indifference and and you know it doesn't have to be this battle of culture and belief and uh, living, walking, talking record of how effective that can be when you just sit down and be curious and be open and be wowed 
by what life right. has because, wow, such incredible experiences. Um, I just have to thank you so much for finding time to stop by and share them with us and sharing your time, talent, and treasure with the world. That's uh, pretty amazing stuff. Oh, thank you, Rick, and thank you, Nikki, and follow your heart. That's what I did all those years. That's what we're doing. Sometimes we're not sure what's going around the next corner, but that's okay. <clears throat> that part of the adventure is whether you're in the jungle where you are, you just can't see around the next corner. That's why it's called a corner. Um, and uh, and again, we'd love to hear about uh, its adventures with the Hopi. And uh, she's had a lot of it. You both had a lot of adventures. Uh, quite the uh, quite the adventuresome, uh, exciting life on this great place we call Earth. And see, we tell people that too, right, Nikki? Just follow your heart. It can be really exciting. Look, look. It can be. Look. Absolutely. Absolutely. So listen, thank thank you again. And uh, the website again is leeelders.com. Uh, it's right there, autographed. Click here, buy now. Autographed hardcover, or you can go to Amazon. You can, you know, but pick up this book. My goodness, amazing stuff. Well, thank you guys. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I had fun. I hope I didn't talk you to death here, but uh, there's so many oh. twists and turns in this book that uh, anyway, we could have hey, done hours on it. But could have done hours on it, and. Uh, and, and we invite all of our listeners to do just exactly that. And uh, and we'd certainly be happy to have you come back and tell us more about the second book when it comes out, too. So Oh, I'll be happy. Absolutely. Because, uh, wow, there's a follow-on. How do you follow it? This is an act to follow, Nikki, we talk about. It is. It's going to be a tough act to follow. Absolutely. So, listen, thanks, everybody out there in Radio Land for joining us. Uh, we do hope that you will join us again next time and also join us for our morning uh, program that's live 9 to 11 Eastern on the Flow Cooperative Network. Uh, drop by our website at everydayconnection.me. All that information is right there, right there where you can find it. And um, so join us then. But until then, to our mother, to each other, and especially to yourselves, stay connected. Have a great now, everybody. Join Jane and Rick again next time. Until then, visit their website at everydayconnection.me and subscribe for news and updates. Stop by their Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash everydayconnection and join the conversation. You can also subscribe on iTunes by searching for Everyday Connection Radio. Subscriptions are free, just like your Everyday Connection. a flow cooperative bringing you the sounds of an awakening world.
So you're ready to ask the biggest question of your life, the only question before that question. How do you find the perfect ring to ask it with? With the incredible selection of diamonds at Jared and our price match guarantee, you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love. Visit your local Jared store today and dare to be devoted. We promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer. See jared.com slash price match for details. So you're ready to ask the biggest question of your life, the only question before that question. How do you find the perfect ring to ask it with? With the incredible selection of diamonds at Jared and our price match guarantee, you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love. Visit your local Jared store today and dare to be devoted. We promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer. See jared.com slash price match for details.